Vegas Bad Boys Podcast presents Matt Michaels People I Don't Hate Alright, uh, let me just do an intro here and we'll uh, get going here Okay Let me get a, a Brandy Alexander for the morning <laughs> The Brandy Alexander's was uh, one of my go-tos for a long time, just because of uh, John John Lennon's Lost Weekend. That's right. That's what he'd be drinking. He was drinking Brandy with Alexander's that, with that other Asian chick. Yeah, Asian yeah. Uh, May Ping. May Ping. Ping. Yes. Wow, that'd be like a mil- uh, who wants to be a millionaire question? Like, <laughs> was John Lennon's Lost Weekend girlfriend Mahjong? <laughs> May Ping, My Lie, like the My Lie Massacre, or Yoko No No. Yoko No No. <laughs> I can't believe you pulled that name out, man. That's crazy. You know, um, and and uh, we're picking up here. Uh, everyone, let me just introduce you. This is Paul Bolger from one of the best jam bands, man, that I've ever heard. The uh, Chicago... Yeah, Chicago famous Mr. Blotto. Um, and uh, we just kind of started talking here. I love that y- you realize that I pulled that out because one of the things I just adore about music in general is the stories that go along with the artists. And that's why I yeah. love, you know, talking to different uh, artists like yourself. Um, you know, I brought up John Lennon. Is there a main influence that you had that you could pull a fact out like that where maybe other people wouldn't know? Who's who's that person in music for you? Um, I think probably my main influence is Ray Charles. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that I know about him that almost no one knows is he was blind. I don't know that much about I mean I've read his biographies and stuff like that and now that his movie came out a lot of people know a lot of stuff about him but uh, he's he's the one that is like probably the most influential on the style that I sing in you know what I mean sure I've I've written some stuff that are in that vein but not a lot I mean it, it influences without being you know the only thing, the, the box I'm in. Right. You know, I'm not in that box because I'm also highly influenced by like Janis Joplin and Three Dog Night, these big voices. <laughs> old, old gospel stuff where they're going, sure. things. Sure. That's what makes my, you know, hair stand up. Those big voices and the, um, Otis Redding, you know, um, and then the early, earlier stuff, uh, Mahalia Jackson or Shirley Caesar, you know, gospel stuff. Yeah. Of course, Aerosmith and rock and roll and all that. Aerosmith was a, a first early, early influence. I, I, I realized early on that I was not ever going to be Steven Tyler because I already outweighed him in like eighth grade. So I was like, <laughs> I'm never going to be the skinny leg guy in leather pants, you know. But musically, I mean, he was way into the Beatles. You can hear it in their harmonies and their structures yeah. and stuff like that. And they were just such badasses that I, you know, as an eighth grader, I, I was just like, oh, you know. You know, it's my- it's funny. Wait, I I love that you said eighth grader because I was in the eighth grade somewhere around uh, 
eighty yeah, it was eighty nine ninety. Pump came out like in late eighty eight. And right. and pr- I liked permanent vacation, but when Pump came out, I was a fan for life. I was just like yeah. I was so drawn in and you know, luckily uh I got a chance wow. This is this is one of those funny things. Marble cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, I used to smoke them, and uh, you signed up for their little club. Yeah. Well, they were doing a f- like an anniversary show that was going to be streamed, uh, you know, across the uh, the internet uh, and the interweb, the interweb, <laughs> and it was being done from um, uh, one of the smaller venues in Los Angeles. And I got two free tickets just mailed to me because I happened oh to be a God. member of this club. So wow. we get there, me and my buddy get there, and we realize we kind of knew that the venue is really one of those standing, you know, on the floor venues. There's no any kind of balcony or any kind of chairs in there. And we get in, and of course, we walk up literally right in front of the stage. And. <laughs> For a for a man who loves those guys like I do, and yeah. for always seeing them from you know that high perspective of the rafters, right, right. Now to see it up front, and that's when you process things like, holy shit! A, how does any human being stay that skinny for yeah all those yeah. years, and, and not have to have a walker? You know, he was, yeah. like, he was life and like limber and like throwing himself around the stage like yeah. an athlete it's just it yeah. was it was phenomenal and then on top of that i think one of the things that gets overlooked is the musicianship of the other guys brad and uh, joey kramer and tom hamilton yeah. Yeah. they're just so fucking tight when they play yeah. i mean of course you know joe and steven get all the front attention yeah but that rhythm background, you know, those guys are so fucking tight. Yeah. What kind of what kind of uh, what kind of uh, things do you guys go through in terms of trying to find that kind of uh, you know musical? Uh, I guess, for a better word, uh, interlocking or, or that spiritual moment when all those notes just start coming together because of the the guys playing it are so tight and you guys are phenomenal with that kind of uh you know just intermixing with each other what's that process like for you guys well the aerosmith thing i remember reading that they had rented out a uh or gotten the rights to rehearse in, in a bigger room and when they were just started you know in 1972 73 and so they would go to like what we would know as the Vic Theater or something right. like that, right? Sure. Or Park West or something like that on a Monday afternoon. And they paid a hundred bucks to the manager or whatever. And they got to rehearse on a big stage. Wow. That made a big difference for those guys because what works on a big stage is a different lesson than what works in a club sure. or a smaller room. And there's some, you know, there's a lot of overlap, but some things definitely work in one of those and they definitely won't work in the other. And the fact that Aerosmith, and he said they, they, rehearsed for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours like all in a row because they were all dedicated they wanted to be what they became 
Yeah. And they knew that the way there was not to smoke weed and dream about it. Their, 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 their path there was to be on stage together creating, you know, with right. their real amps and stuff like that. So that's how they, that's one of the things they got there. How we get there is uh, we, we have the same sort of thing. We have our warehouse and it's always set up with our spare gear. <laughs> PA system's already there. You walk in, you flip a switch and you can create. Wow. So you don't have to schlep your stuff up the stairs. Right. And stuff. Like, so we get in there and we get right to it. And our, our first thing is we just warm up with whatever anybody wants, just a chord progression, right? We're just kind of doing it. But in the end, we always sweat the details of like, wait, what are you doing right there? You know, to the drummer, you know, Alan, I'd be sure. like, are you doing a one E and a two E? And, or are you doing a one E and a two E? And, like, and so we, we work out our groove so that, it's not so ironclad. I think with Aerosmith, it was right. probably down to the note. They knew exactly their right. That was a different thing. That's rock and roll, straight up rock and roll right. band, where we're sort of a jam band. Right. And we have the advantage of having listened to all their albums. They hadn't listened to all their albums. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we sweat We sweat where the groove's at, and we make sure that nobody's conflicted with anyone. And then as far as the, the musicality of it, we know a few... Uh, musical rules that allow us as far as melody goes sure to always be on the same page for example do you play it all do you play music at all sing sing so yeah you sing. okay yeah. so that's how i'm a main singer so right. i don't think it scales or anything like that i don't think i think i'm going to sing a c major scale over their f here because that's what i learned at berkeley you know <laughs> you just sing from your heart right? right but musically if you're playing like a you know some jam in a minor we would look and say okay you're an a minor is there a b minor that goes in there because if it is then the a minor is the two and the b minor is the three and therefore you have to play in the scale of g that kind of thing you extrapolate back right. and once we all know what that um rule is for that jam you, you're not going to make any mistakes right unless you make a flub with your hand you know but I'm going to be, as a rhythm guitar player, I'm going to be playing G major, A minor, B minor, C major, D major, you know, all, all and substituting all those things in and out there. The bass player is playing a G scale unless he gets off of it and goes to a melody. And the lead guitarist, Mark, is going to do all those things and then find melodies that he knows over. So in other words, at each, if you took a, a cross section or like a snapshot of any second of our playing, all those things would be within that rule. Within that rule, yeah. Within that rule, in the time-space continuum, they're random. Right. I happen to be here. He happens to be here, and that's why you get these unique, you know, things like a Dixieland band. You know, it's like sure. everything's going, but everything's working. Right. Right. Everything's so. That's technically how we make that happen. the The other, uh, more ethereal thing is that you are all sort of breathing as one organism. You're all listening keenly. Right. We don't party when we play. A lot of people can't believe that because they're partying when we play. Yeah. And it's a great background for them. <laughs> we're we're super focused, and it's so fun. Like we're not like saying, "Oh, I wish I could, you know, be all messed up like everybody." Else. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be. I'll I'll drink afterwards. Right. I'll, you know. Right. We'll hit that afterwards. But when we're in it, we're keenly aware of what everyone in the band is playing. Everyone's listening to everyone, and so if someone takes a turn, oh, that's the other thing. In improvisation, yes, I think we were talking about this yesterday. A little yeah, bit. The, the, the rule in improv on stage for actors is accept and 
move forward, uh, advance. Yeah, we call it, some term for it, but it's, we call it's it, we it. call it yes and. Yes and. So it's the same thing. So for anyone listening to this who doesn't know exactly what we're talking about, it's like if, if we were doing a, an improv right here, I say, okay, let's be two doctors, right? Go. And you say, well, I'm a veterinarian. And, and I'm thinking, no, I want him to be a doctor. I wouldn't say, no, you're not a veterinarian. You're a right. surgeon, right? Like you can never do that. You have to right. say, yes, you're a vet. Yep. And even if you said, I'm a car mechanic, I thought, I thought we we're going to be doctors in this kit. You say, oh, yeah, you're the car doctor. And then you move on from there. Right. But you always have to accept what the other person is doing and then advance it. So, yes, and is a great way of saying it. Um, we do that all the time. Someone hits into uh, the drummer will go, and kick to halftime. It goes into halftime. We're like, you know, you don't even give yourself the time to go, what the hell is he doing at halftime? Or you go like, oh, apparently we're going into halftime here. So now let's embrace that. And like, oh, this this opens up my thing. I can play a couple more notes in there. Or sure. Whatever. So those are those are the things that allow us to get to achieve liftoff. Sure. You know? And another great thing is we're big fans of the Grateful Dead. We're big fans of fish too. Mm-hmm. And widespread panic and all these bands. But all fish right. in particular, fish in particular had the work ethic and the geek the geek mentality sure. of like sweating out every little detail of anything musical. They, they say that in their rehearsals at one point of their career, um, they would do drills. Like it all stand facing each other's four of them. Right. <laughs> and they would all be playing in a simple groove, like don't right. They're all playing this thing. And then this person's turn would come and I would have to imitate what the person left of me is playing either rhythmically or melodically. Wow. So wow. it's the drummer, and he's going. I have to go. Wow. And when I feel I got my part nailed, I nod to the guy on my left, and then he looks to the guy on his left, right? Yeah. And, and this is the drummer looking at the bass player, and the bass player's going. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And the drummer has to go. He has to imitate it to a degree. Yeah. And yeah. they you keep going around the circle. And they fish said they would drill themselves, and I don't know if they did it that specific way, but that's how we did it when we imitated their drill sure marvelous results like once it goes around the circle even like twice you're in some unknown <laughs> vast groove wasteland that has never been played and you could never duplicate again yep. and so we had a recording thing there and we would always be like quick hit record like every do what you're doing and get this section we're like okay and then we could revisit that and go like i think i got a song that'll you know fit onto that. that as a songwriter yeah. i've always got bits and pieces of unwritten songs that are i've got a chorus i got a verse i got one line i've got right and so we'll take me go i think that thing might go right on that groove and then you have a really cool unique groove yeah so i did not sure that's that's kind of how we operate that's i i love the fact that you brought up um fish and the grateful dead uh i am i'm a fish fan but you know that is the extent of some of my friends who are so into fish right on the opposite that's how i am yeah, I mean, and Trey is, I, I, I can't even say what I think about, you know, Trey is I one think of they're the best, best live band on the planet, for sure. Exactly. But I don't know, I don't know all the lyrics to Fluffhead or something. Right. You know, there's people that are so into the fish church. Yeah. And exactly. I'm not there, but I see them whenever I can, and I love them. So good. And on the flip side, though, The Grateful Dead is one of my, like, passionate, <laughs> you know, and and I I love that uh, you guys when you cover Grateful Dead songs, um, 
what is awesome is that the musical structure of the song is obviously there okay it's identifiable we know that song the jams that you guys come up with within the structure of the song is gorgeous it's beautiful Mm -hmm. Because mm-hmm. you could tell, you know, it's just funny too. Um, you know, we talk a lot about professional wrestling on our show, and one of the things that I um, really look for when I'm watching two people in there doing that core, you know, it's it's like a dance, right? The coolest thing is when you can see in their eyes or in a little bit of a smirk that they're having so much fun with what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And you guys, you could hear in, you know, the musicality of what's being played, even though I'm driving in my car and I can't, you know, I can't see anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm hearing that, you know, that joy, you know, I could, in my mind, I could see you guys, you know, turning and looking at each other and, you know, yeah, because the music is so joyful in terms of what you guys just can explore. Right. And the coolest thing about that is that, you know, and this is, I, I think primarily why the dead love doing the jamming is that man, Friday show is not Saturday show ever. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, not even like they didn't repeat a song from Friday to Saturday. Yeah. So it, we don't need to, yeah. we follow that one too. We're like, as soon as we had no songs to do that, we, you know, like 20 years ago, we're like, okay, no repeats show to show. <laughs> But yeah, you could repeat the same song three days later and have a completely different, different song jam on. Yeah. In fact, you will have a completely different jam on, unless it's one of the more basic ones like Tennessee Jet or something. Right. That's really kind of structured out. Although, uh, if someone challenged me, we could take that outside. But sure. something like, you know, let it grow. Like, oh, yeah. oh my God. You have, so, you have two or three different jumping points in that tune to jump yeah. off into the deep end for as long as you'd like to. Yep. And then you have a cue. You have a cue to come back. And I think the Grateful Dead were a jazz group because more than anything else, they follow the aesthetic of the jazz. Take a yep. theme, improvise on the theme, and everyone takes their turn until they're all done. And then there's a some sort of cue that they come back to the theme at the end. Yeah, almost and- without exception. And it's it's beautiful because it's an American art form that that they took and borrowed from and created. They created jam bands. I mean, yeah. they really did. Yeah, they um, were the first ones. I mean, and and you know, I I love that you put the jazz in context because one of my favorite things in Spinal Tap is when, when Derek Smalls <laughs> let's do our jazz opus. <laughs> We've got that. So that's twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like and i'm just i, I mean i cry every time i because <laughs> it's so like yeah man that's like when you when you're just into that experience of just playing and especially in a situation where you have a comedy where the band's falling apart right why not turn to our like jazz, jazz? <laughs> well see I, i've always contended that the difference between punk and jazz is intention because a punk band is playing random notes because they don't know how to play anything other right, than random notes. Right. A jazz band is playing in at times cacophony or dissonance or something like that, completely on purpose. Right. So 
the punk band's out of tune because they don't know how to tune their guitar and they only know three chords and they're like top volume and it's all emotion 100 percent right and jazz is like the other end of the scale although like i said that that snapshot of any jam you could take a snapshot of a punk band and you could find a jazz thing where it's fingerprint is almost the same sure what came right before it right after it would be vastly different you know right 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 and that's 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 fascinating because uh when i think of what the uh the beatles did you also have to look then at the um the influences of a growing up post world war 2 in that you know that very and especially in britain having that very uh uh you know that uh traditional you know <sighs> stodgy british yeah just that you know that influences a song like when i'm 64 or you know that's that's not rock and roll not not that uh you know it's that precursor to what was about to happen right and then you bring george martin into the mix and i think that they went from when they started showing that interest into other forms George Martin was the um, the Yoda of yeah. the Beatles. You know, it's it's it yeah. blows my mind what you can do. I think that a different guy could have done their first six or eight albums, right? No, but from uh, you know Rubber Soul on, yeah, sixty two. It, had, it 62, had to be George because yeah, sixty two to sixty five was kind of the same level and then in 66 anyone who was very professionally good would be it would have been okay with them right down. right but to you know to write the string section for eleanor rigby <laughs> like that's the universe smiling you know that's god the real muse yeah going put a little chili pepper in this chocolate right here you know what i mean like oh now you got and some curry in the chocolate like whoa He's just put a little ingredient yep. in there. So let's see what these guys do. I mean, wow. Is, is there game. is there anyone that uh, that you guys uh, look to like that in terms of are you guys very uh, self produced when you you know look at the albums that you guys have done? How influential have uh, producers been? to the band's recording not at all we, we, we we've always produced ourselves nice so we work with engineers that we get along great with and we're really palsy with sure that are also excellent so that there's a really uh loose camaraderie kind of vibe while we're doing it so that the engineer always feels comfortable going you know you guys this sounds a little to this or to that. He's not afraid. He's not like, oh, God, these guys hired me. I just got to turn knobs. Right. So we produce as a committee, which is sometimes problematic, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, we try we try and rule with consensus, but we have to rule by quorum. We will. You know, right. we're going to vote it. And, like, we can't come to a consensus. We'll vote it and just be done. You just have to live with it. But engineers that we've worked with, Chuck Kaywall, uh, Dan Steinman, um, these guys are all, like, so great at what they do that we can say, I don't know, man, what, you know, you're sitting here on the couch, you're like, what would you do? And you know what the problem is right here? What, what would you do? And you say, I would just 
and they whatever they say next is something I never would have thought of. And it's like, right. wow. So a good engineer, if you, if empowered by the band to be uh, a collaborator on the whole thing, is kind of a producer, a co-producer with you. Sure. Sure. Because you know? what does a producer really do? A producer isn't turning the knobs. A producer is helping the artist achieve their vision. Right. In the studio and augmenting that and offering options for them to say, Ooh, I'd like to cherry pick that. That's a great idea. Oh, you wrote a strings uh, quartet for my song. Great. That sounds great. Yeah. You know, um, but that's what the producer's job is, is to render to the artist their best possible vision of what their thing. And when you're talking about something as, as vague and, uh, and, and ethereal as music, it could be lots of things. And like, you know, the more, the better that is to choose from. Right. But we always produced ourselves. Uh, you know, we've, we've toyed with getting a producer, but it's always like, you know, do you want to cough up 20 or 30 grand to get like some LA guy that's done a couple big names to fly right. in for two weeks and produce your album? Like, what if he says, I hear harmonica, I hear an 18 piece harmonica section on this? You know, we're like, I don't like that. And I need to pay 20 grand for the guy to give you bad advice. <laughs> Although an 18 piece harmonica is like, that's our joke in the band. When you play a gig and they say, well, we like to pay you per man. You say, okay, we have an 18 piece harmonica section. <laughs> oh, man. That would, that would, I, I'm, you know, I love the absurdity too that you have and, you know, things yeah. like that. That's, that's amazing. Um, does, does some of that, uh, you know, when you guys are looking at your personalities, and your interests and you know your the things that influenced you into the person you are and everyone in the band the person they are is does that allow you guys to really you know fuck around and explore because you're all comfortable with each other and you know what each other brings is yeah. that yeah, yeah is that like a product of just I mean, obviously, you're in the band with your brother, so there's a natural, yeah. you know, uh, you guys have known each other your whole lives, but right. but being on the same page with guys for as long as, you know, a, a band can be, does that kind of also break up some of the, uh, you know, the when, it, when you're in the studio and it's getting dull or where you're on stage and you might just kind of, you know, slit something in to you know, crack one of the guys up, you know, how is that camaraderie of your personalities come together to enhance your musical aspects? Uh, in the studio, it's a hang. You're hanging like you are on the bus going somewhere, but it's less festive. You're more focused on, on uh, what you're trying to get done there. And, and there's pressure because, you know, if you don't get it in the studio, you're not going to get it. You know, it's important. Right. It's going to be there forever. And so we have great arguments in the studio about how to, to do stuff, but, but our personalities are always there anyway, because we've been together so long that we all crack each other up live. We definitely crack each other up. <laughs> and like, I can, in the middle of a, you know, middle of something going on, I can say something to Mark Haig as we're standing there playing guitars about something going on, on the other side of the stage or something out there. And we'll just laugh our asses off. You know, it's like, or I can give Alan a look, like if Alan on drums will do something and he'll do a, a he's, he's a jazz kind of guy. And so sure. he'll do something that's really 
sounds upside down and then it comes out right, you know? Yeah. And I look back at him, I'll, I'll turn back and this is what he sees. The other guy was like, <laughs> you're like, really? You know, that look like, was that what I thought it was? And he'll, be, he'll laugh and be like, yeah, dude, I got this, you know? So <laughs> I think when Mark joined our band um, in like 2000, uh, we were already we were already a band for 10 years, right? right. And so when he joined the band, he was like, I'm so relieved that this is a band that hangs because we hang before the gig and after the gig. I said, what, what are you talking about? I don't know any other way. He goes, because that's the only bands I've ever been in. I had a band in college. I'm a garage band with, with my brother, you know, growing up. A band in college, a post-collegiate band, and then Blotto. So, like, right. I've only had four bands in my yeah. life. You know what I mean? With side <laughs> projects and stuff like that. But sure. this is, you know, some people, you know, by the time I'm 55, by the time they're 55, First of all, they're usually done. They're right. like, yeah, I'm not playing rock anymore. Come on. It's a kid's game. But they've been in 38 bands. And I, you know, we had, so the only thing I ever knew was to be hanging out with your buddies and laughing and stuff like that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I was in this band and that band. He goes, and this these two guys were a clique and these two didn't hang with anyone. And wow. we didn't all hang in the same room. I'm like, dude, I don't know what that would feel like. Because we're like backstage for the show just totally ripping on each other and having a great time like a friar's roast you know and just laughing and whoever's <laughs> turned it in to get scorched it's just like oh fuck me like everyone's on me right now like okay let's go you know and that that gives you a lot of glue i think that's a lot of glue yeah it's like show me a man and his wife who can rip on each other lovingly and crack each other up and keep each other honest you're getting a little big-headed about this job, his promotion you got at work, or she's getting a little big, big-headed about like how good she looks in a bikini or her job at work, and how she just crushed it and sold a million dollars of them. Keep each other in check with humor, right? And and with love, you know. And right. there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of love in our band, and we can we can tell each other when I'm really fucking mad at you for doing this this way or this that, you know. Sure. And you go, hey man, I get it, and you can be mad at me and. We'll try and we'll try and figure it out, you know. And sometimes it lasts for a while, a week or two, but in the end we talk it out, we we work it out, you know. That's it's the only way. You know, you have to you have to realize that the band is more important than whatever quibble is happening. Sure. Um you know, you know speaking of the longevity, when you guys were uh just starting out, the grunge movement hit within you know yeah within a, a year or two of the band really you know starting up uh and it, was that something that interested you at all in terms of hey well maybe we could kind of play a little bit like this and maybe that will help us get a little more exposure or, you know, right. a record deal. W were you ever, you know, tempted to use that idea of this is what's popular. If I do what's popular, there's a chance that that might make us more popular. We never, we never did bow to that beast. I, uh, I remember when the grunge was happening and I was happy. Cause I was so sick of seeing hair bands with full on Farrah Fawcett majors makeup, you know, yeah, bra bragging in their lyrics about what a man they are and how many chicks they're with. I'm like, dude, you are a chick. Look at you, you know. <laughs> so grunge, grunge had to happen. Grunge yeah. was the pendulum going. Okay, we're way over here. We're gonna swing back over here. We're gonna put on flannel and Doc Martens, and we're gonna 
rage. I mean, well, you know what grunge is. So yeah. that was happening, and we were definitely aware of it, but we never we never saw ourselves as anything except songwriters in a band that was going to jam like the dead. That's yeah. all we wanted. We wanted we wanted to write our songs because if you look at Grateful Dead, somebody said Grateful Dead is just country music for people on acid. <laughs> If you think about it, like, you know, it kind of is. Yeah. So we thought, you know, when we named the band Mr. Blotter after Acid, Blotter Acid, we thought, yeah. you know, it's, it's, we're going to go down this path. So we would write songs and then have sections to open up and we would jam, sometimes in just the blues country idiom, like Big River or something like that. Right. And sometimes in the more expanded ones, like, you know, Music Never Stopped or something with a big open section. Right. So that was a template that we followed. The fact that grunge was happening over here, we we're like, that's cool. That needed to happen. Let's get more Aerosmith, less Guns N' Roses, you know. Right. Or maybe that's a bad example. Less, yeah. less. Uh, you you had uh, poison. Less poison. Poison Cinderella. Or yeah. like early Aerosmith and less poison. Yeah. Okay. And said so that's great, and I was cheering it on. Now, just like the Dead, they stayed on their thing always, always evolving on their thing, but. When something like that happened, their grunge happening around them was disco. Right. Disco happened. Remember, you kids at home, uh, you remember the disco scare of the late 70s. Disco <laughs> scare. Uh, it was happening everywhere. Well, the dead didn't drop what they were doing and say, hey, we're going to be a disco band. But they did Shakedown Street because for sure Billy and Mickey were like, yeah. Yep. Right. And you know that the dead. Their entire ethos was yes and. Right. They never said no to anything. Yeah. To each other, to musical style, to exploration, nothing. Everything's okay. They weren't like, oh, disco's lame or disco's so like they're like, disco's music, bro. And it fucking came from Afro Cuban music and something. You know, there's there's tradition behind this, regardless of how vapid the version of it is up here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This thing, you know, <laughs> they, so so they're playing around. I guarantee they're playing around with that beat, and Jerry's on, and all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, this is a song, just as valid as our most rock and roller song, or, yeah, you know, pig pig pen song or something." Oh. You know, and so what came from that was one of their classics. So they they took that spice that was happening and put it in their stew. They didn't take their stew and put it in that spice. Right, right. Okay. Same thing with the Rolling Stones. Yep. I'll go walk in Central Park. You know, yeah. miss you. Yep. Straight up, same time frame, late seventies. They embraced the disco thing because the Stones were a yes and band. Even they're a little bit more compartmentalized into their. I realize I'm doing this a lot as I look at <laughs> like Chris Farley. Dig like, here and move there. Um, but you know what I mean. So yeah. The same way we wrote a song on our second album called uh, It Doesn't Matter Anymore. It was right after Kurt Cobain killed himself. And we did it in that sort of, um, remember when Nirvana did the Unplugged yeah. on MTV? Mm -hmm. We did it and we wrote it from that standpoint, like it could be in that set. Sure. And uh, it's just about the angst of that generation and sitting in your room trying to even out the score. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. You know, and at the end, we're like, life goes on, though Kurt is gone. Life goes on, yeah. though Kurt is gone. And so there's one that, that we kind of embraced that ethos or that musical thing and uh, filtered it into our stew. 
but we never were going to get drawn off our path and go, okay, here's the thing that's selling to the kids. Here's what the kids like. Let's go that way. You know? And at the time also you had like Eddie Vedder and you had, um, uh, some of these other bands, Metallica and, uh, some of those came with Megadeth and they came out of the scene and they're, they're all singing like this here. Yeah. Remember the guys all saying, Hey, like this here. Like, uh, Auctioneer slow motion. Hey, give me five, give me twenty-five. Here, <laughs> and I was never gonna go that way as a singer because I knew that in five years that's gonna sound really silly and dated. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't. I, I can listen to our first album right now from '91, and the production's a little, you know, I mean, it's our first try, right? But songs are there and the performances are there, and I'm singing like me, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I didn't get bent into that, uh, you know, thing. Well, you know, it's it's interesting too that you say that about the um, singing style at that point, because as a singer, one of the things that I find fascinating, and I I got a lot of my um, experience or training, uh, luckily from uh, Chuck Somar, who was in uh, the Ides of March, and oh, okay. he was one of the trumpet players for them, you know, since the beginning, and he happened to be high school vocal coach when you know we do musicals um and one of the things that i found which was fascinating to me is that that style of you know that angst that 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 punk into grunge feel as much as i try to listen and imitate it it always comes out of my voice much differently and yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, that's an amazing thing to recognize in your own securities, you know, because we always have more insecurity than security, that your voice is your voice. And just as well, what you put your pen down for lyrics is also your voice, you know. Right. Was it for you finding those lyrics uh, process of and and I know being an actor, being a writer, being a singer, I'm always still to this day, even with all the computer and stuff, I'm finding pieces of paper that I wrote, you know, down one line or, you know, a, a theory of okay, here's something that could be something. Is that what you ended up doing in terms of coming up with songs? Is you know trying to jot down ideas ASAP. <laughs> I have a section called Lyric Bits. <laughs> so I just have little little lines that might sound cool in a song. Yeah. And her name that presently escapes me. I like the sound of that. You know? Yeah. It's like, like it's a girl, da, 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 and her name that presently escapes me. Like, so that sounds very, you know, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, so things like, I have like, you know, hundreds of those, and like hundreds of song ideas. It's like, yeah. I uh, I always was writing lyrics, you know, when I was in high school on the back of my math book, you know, a math thing, I'm like writing, you know, and they're angst written and they're like, you know, rock and, you know, Black Sabbath, the Aerosmith, the, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know. Yeah. But it evolved as I evolved as a person. And my brother, being a year older than me, and he was a voracious reader, like he read everything. <laughs> and I'm more like, you know, verbal learner and uh, more ADD. And so, like, I don't really read books unless they're like, uh, musical biographies of people that I love that I can really pour into it, but I can't right. sit and read like a mockingbird right. or to kill a mockingbird. I can't, I just can't, you know, I, I had to in college and I got cliff notes and I got through it in order. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
but I'm but I've always been a huge fan of lyric and poetry. Edgar Allan Poe, you know, like, and some of the Irish poets that I identified with. I was like, I read their stuff, and then now I can read. I can read now better than I could then. I, I don't know why, but um, but my brother Chief was always reading the classics, you know. Uh, the Odyssey and the, all these things and, you know, Ayn Rand and all these things. And, and he would explain to me, you know, we'd get into some life situation. He'd go, this is like in uh, the Fountainhead, which I knew was an eight, it was an 800 page book by Ayn Rand, you know, or 1200 page book that he had like poured through and like loved. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got past the forward about Ayn Rand. Right. right? Ayn Rand was a Russian immigrant who like, yeah. So, but through our lives, we we're, we're like peas and carrots, him and I. So he would always be explaining, oh, this this came from the Fountainhead when this outlaying group did this and the powers that be were crushing them and one guy went around it, like whatever. And so I became aware as though he was a teacher to me sure. about the classics and how the classics are laid out and what the paradigms are and the, and the formats are for like, for example, the invocation of the muse at the beginning of the odyssey like oh muse give me words that i might tell my story clearly give me inspiration that i can and so i was aware of the invocation of the muse as part of what the classics are because of my bookworm brother who's now in my band right (laughs) so that later on as i'm writing things with him and he and i write lyrics you know all the time 50 50 you know like sometimes i do most of it sometimes he does most of it but we are constant collaborators on on lyrics and we're huge fans of each other's stuff. And I was tease him that I'll write like 90% of the song and he'll write the line that would be the bumper sticker. It's like the perfect line. I'm like, oh, God, I just built a whole house and you put the chimney on and it's the best part, you know? But there's other ones where it's reversed like that. But anyway, it made me able to recognize those archetypes like at the beginning of Terrapin Station. Let yeah. my inspiration flow. That's an invocation of the muse. Yeah. Yeah. And token rhyme, suggesting rhythm. That will not escape me till my tale is told and done. That's in the invocation of the news. That's Robert Hunter. I just lost your visual. Are you there? Yeah. There that's we go. Awesome. That's that's Robert Hunter invoking the muse, just like Virgil or whoever whoever wrote the I don't even know. I said it right now. <laughs> so those types of things. And then I got really into um forms. Like the, the easiest one would be a limerick, right? Sure. So you have a limerick, you have rules. Once was a man from Nantucket. I think you can know the rest of that one. Right. So then I got into triolets. Triolet is an eight-line poem in which the first line occurs as the first line, as the fourth line, and as the eighth line repeated. Okay. And, I, and the third line repeats as the seventh line. Seventh line, right. Very restrictive. Like a sonnet, like if you're going to write a sonnet, there's rules for sonnet or a haiku, there's rules for haiku. It seems very restrictive until you get into it and it's like, it's actually liberating because you know you don't have any room to elaborate on anything. You can only do headlines. Right. right. You basically go with eight newspaper headlines that work together. So in that restriction, it's actually liberating. So I wrote a gazillion triolets and I put a couple of them in a song called Triolet because right. I was like... I couldn't stop doing it, you know. So that's my lyrical journey, you know. Uh, I, I, I'm good at putting things into words that I experience, you know. I'm not great at putting things into a global um, 
thing that everyone can be like, oh, he's talking about, you know, right. Heaven and hell and the existential. <laughs> I, I'm good at talking about what the weather felt like me today to me, right. you know, and I think people relate to either one, you know, because everyone's had the sun on their back and who knows what that feels like. So if I'm, if I'm relating that in a, lyric i think it comes across and then we're big fans of storytelling too so we right. have a lot of things that are linear narrative guy walks down the street this happens to him this is the conflict this is resolution where, you know peggy o or jack Row, those kind of right. storytelling songs always been a fan of those too but that was a long-winded answer to <laughs> no no it's you know i i think that like you said the there there are so many different um methods upon arriving to what you're creating you know um and i think that really you know this goes back to let's say the beatles or the dead uh in the sense of being open to exploring without limitations is one of the most inspiring things that you know listen we wouldn't have Mr. Kite, if John didn't see a fucking poster. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And and then yeah. and then you gotta go, who the hell in 1966, 67 was actually thinking, you know, oh wow, that'd make just reading a poster like that and go, yeah. <laughs> Make her, like nobody's thinking that it's like think about the guy who made the poster yeah he's making a poster he's on a deadline he goes i gotta get these things out by four o'clock because mr kite's doing his somersaults tomorrow at four o'clock <laughs> you know it's a job it's a job i'm work 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 and he's doing his thing and he's never thinking some british hippie dude is gonna make this a song that these two guys will be talking about on their podcast in 2021 like no clue yeah, and it's it's, no clue. it's he's the most random person and the most necessary in the whole thing. There's a guy who doesn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but you know, and it's interesting. Like, like you said, like writing to people, writing for things people can relate to, I think is so important as well because of the fact that we've all seen a promotional poster for something, right? So to take that. Why not yeah. make that a song? Um, I love the stories, like you said, something like a Peggio. I'll get more invested into a song that is taking me from the starting point through the arc to the end of the story. I love that because so you're, you're, yeah, you're a fan of linear narrative. Yeah, because you don't. Yeah, me too. You don't you don't find it a lot of times in um you know what is pushed out there as um commercial pop it, of course musically it will have its merits but at the same time it's being targeted for a specific thing and that's for creating cash. Yeah, and it's slick. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel right. It's it's, right. it's, it's a lot of technique and not a lot of heart. And you know. and a lot of overproduction too. I think that the producers on that kind of music, unlike yeah. that situation where you have 
um, you know, just a little bit of feedback, no interference. On that polish shit, it's so, you know, let's shine it up so much that you can't see yeah. that the car's actually rusted out. You know, and, and once you find out that the car's rusted, <laughs> yeah. then you don't ever want to purchase that car anymore. And that's when the pop bands go away. And that's why you recycle every three, four years. Yeah. You're going through some kind of new influx of what is popular. Um, right. Ha- have you been, uh, I, and, and this is hard, you know, I don't want to say patting yourself on the back, but did you guys realize that as you guys were growing and moving and, you know, breathing and becoming this from a baby into an adult, that you were seeing that other babies ended up being teenagers and that was it. You know, maybe some of them got to be in their 20s. Yeah. But then the, the you know, the band was gone or the music was gone. Were you, you know, surprised right. at, at being able to have that longevity that is still you know keeping to grow and explore and always learning and basically mr blotto being essentially your guy's kid you know every five years some band in the local scene comes up and bubbles up and they're they're kind of rivaling you and this and that and then maybe they last another five years and they, they go away like right. somebody, old lady has a baby, and they say, I got to do this. And someone's father-in-law says, last chance to work for the dear old firm. And he says, I'll take it. Right? And so things bubble up. And then some shoot past. And they're like, you know, and they'll get bigger than we are for a while. Maybe they'll get signed. And they'll do a couple albums. And then they fade away. And then they're selling shoes somewhere. <laughs> or they're somehow in the business. Right? And we just keep we just keep doing our thing. And these things bubble up, and they go down, bubble up, and they pass us, and they blow And we just keep going like we're like an elevator that's slowly going up, right, you know. Right. And other things are going, I'll go up to this floor, I'll go to this floor. And they go, and we just keep going steady, slow, and steady wins the race. Not that there's a race to win, you know. The, the winning is being able to play. Right. You know, being to play for a living. Spend your life with your instrument in your hand, you know. Um, so it there's always that, that kind of thing happening. We... I don't feel like the band is our baby so much. I think maybe the albums are our babies sure. in this analogy. The band is still us, just like just like we get old and we get some gray in our beard, right? Sure. And we get a little bit a little more wisdom in this and that. And the band is that way. The band is um, the music we write and record. It's a little bit more complex now and a little bit more mature. Sure. Uh, it always had that same sort of vibe through it. We didn't we didn't have any big corners that we turned and all of a sudden we're going this way. We always tried to incorporate whatever we wanted to put in there. It's very eclectic, you know, there's stuff all over this straight up country, there's straight up blues, a straight up psychedelia, but the band is us. I mean, there's like, there's no, there's no distance between us and the band. It is us. I mean, we, I tell younger bands when they're like, which is a cool thing the last, you know, 15, 20 years, young bands come up to me and go, hey, man, you know, we're big fans of you guys. We're following you. What should we do? And I'm like, wow, we've become the, you know, the old the old man of the scene. This is great. <laughs> and I was giving the best advice I can. I say, you know, James Taylor said, keep your overhead low and play every day. That's what James Taylor said. That's good. That's good advice. Yeah. I said, I said, take every gig that comes your way 
And if it means you're going to miss your buddy's wedding, you're Mrs. Wedding. Take the gig. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I missed all my buddy's weddings, almost all of them, unless I randomly had a night off. And our Fridays and Saturdays almost completely for the last 30 years were taken up. Right. So it says my internet connection is unstable. So if I start warbling, let me know. I'll do something. But um, I, I tell them we sacrificed our lives on the altar of this band. We gave up everything yeah. to be in this band. We made our relationships harder. We missed our friends' weddings. We, you know, we didn't go on vacation except once a year. One week a year we took off for 30 years. Now, uh, recently, we took a year off this year. We took a year off. Sure. I, I, <laughs> I think that, that this year was, uh, you know, a lot of people's first real vacations in forever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but that... I flew all over. I took, I took advantage of this year. Hell yeah. Yeah. My girl and I, we flew to Hawaii for $270 on United round trip. <laughs> went to Honolulu for nine days. I went to Key West, hung with a buddy. I just went to Puerto Rico for nine days. Oh. I'm like, if they're not going to let me work, I am going to play. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. But but you but you also you got to a position where, you know, you've earned. Um, even if it you know took a worldwide pandemic to to do it for you, you've earned that chance to yeah. step away for a little bit and just you know see some more places you know do a little things you're you're not getting a chance to do because of the fact that and, and it's funny in in this sense if you love what you're doing it's never work and therefore you're always working right <laughs> and you know and you That's can true. and you can look and, yeah don't let me paint yeah. it don't let me paint it like we're in a dungeon you know 51 <laughs> weeks a year we're we're loving life <laughs> And every year we take that week and on, we go to Jamaica or someplace cool sure. every year, you know? So it's great. You know, I don't, I'm not lamenting that at all. I'm sure. just saying that like these young bands don't realize it takes sacrifice to, to get to that distant shore where you are a thing that people know and you can, you know, take advantage of the fact that you you have longevity and that you are to some degree a soundtrack in some people's lives. Yep. Many people have gotten married to kiss me in the morning. Like they just they they email me that all the time, and when they request the song, I'll always play it. Because if someone came out and said, you know, oh, this is the song I identify with, this is their most popular song, really. Would you play it? I'm never going to be that guy that goes, oh man, I'm not going to play that. You know, I feel like I've I've moved past that song in my life, and it's like, okay, they came out here and they want they love your band, and they're dying to hear a song that you wrote. Yeah, play the song. And I, yeah. I always find something new in the song. You know, I just dig in. You know, we don't play it unless it's requested. Usually, sure, unless it's uh, you know, some situations. But I mean, to get to that point, you have to, you have to, you know, sacrifice a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, speaking of, you're a big movie fan. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of times uh, when bands are playing all these various venues throughout you know illinois uh wisconsin indiana etc i always kind of think about bob's country bunker and the blues brothers <laughs> have you guys ever had an instance where you're like hey this has been fun this has been great let's get the fuck out of here oh my god yeah 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, early on, you, early on, you take your lumps and you get burned by someone that doesn't pay you, you know. Oh. And after that, you're like, we get paid before. If I don't know you, we get paid before we go on. Yep. Or you can mail me a check five days, five business days in advance, so it clears by the time I step on your stage. Because I'm not going to go chase you down at the end of the gig. I'm mentally like enervated. I'm sweating, and I got to find the promoter who's like talking to some chick down. You know, like forget it. Right. So we have had those gigs where we've we've been paid. The gig sucked. Like the situation sucked, and we fulfilled our contractual obligation. And now it's time to go. Let's get the fuck out of here. I'll tell you one time we played. I'm not going to say what city, but sure, we played in the city, and a guy put together a thing, and he. At the end of the night, we had our bus there. We had a 40-foot tour bus, right? We're up there. We incurred some expense coming up there, even though we owned the bus, but still driver and fuel and all that stuff. Right. He's like, at the end of the night, he's like, well, we didn't do so well at the door, so uh, I, I'm going to pay you um, whatever. I, I forget. So let's say 20% of what it was going to be. Jesus. I'm like, what What are you talking about? He goes, what I don't, I just don't have the money because we, I thought we'd make it the door. I said that, that's the risk you took. That's not the risk I took. You know, so that conversation ensued. So this dipshit didn't realize that I had his home address, and so I took the twenty percent of the money, and we waited, and then he went home, and then we pulled up in front of his door, and I had three or four bikers on Harley's that were our fans. That I said, you guys found me this asshole's house because we're gonna. We're gonna get the eighty percent out of them. They're like, no problem. They're drinking old bottles. Like now, now, no, not now. Not, hang on. We're sitting outside. Knock on the door. He answers, eyes like saucers. We all walk in to his house. I go, I know you have the rest of the money somewhere in here, and if you don't, I'm gonna find it in products that I can sell for that money. And these guys are with me now. What do you think? He's like, hang on. And he comes out and he gives me a wad of cash. I'm like, fuck you. He was like. And I knew the door wasn't that, you know, I knew the door wasn't dismal. I look, I can look at a room and tell you within, well, conservatively within 10% sure. of how many people are in that room. Sure. Probably within five by now. <laughs> and he was claiming something that was way, way off. I'm like, okay, this is how we, we're from Chicago, bro. This is how we do it. Pay me my money, you know. And you hate to be that guy like, pay me my money because I'm all about the art. But I got to survive, you know. The bus doesn't run on steam. Well, no, and that's a very valid point. Um, again, you know, I think of uh, a lot of my friends who are independent pro wrestlers. Promoters are the same way, yeah. no matter what you know type of live entertainment it is. Yeah, and especially as you look at the um, as the venue and the establishment is higher up the promoters are usually 99% of the time they're going to honor the contract because right. you know they don't want to get reputation you know, it's yeah. reputation and but you know when you're playing some of these real <laughs> bottom feeders it's like <laughs> yeah that's exactly I, I it's 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 amazing how many times that i've heard the stories of you know oh uh, yeah i got stiffed and blah 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 and how people now know you learn. Uh, no, I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna fall for that shit. You right. have it, and you know. Now, my brother, my brother, the bass player, Chief, yeah. is a lawyer, and <laughs> he's a lawyer. He designed our contract, and it's like it's watertight. Like sure, Noah, his arc was this watertight. You know, <laughs> so it's like 
he's got clauses in there I don't want to even say that right. are just that protect us completely. But in the end, you can't get blood out of a turnip. If a guy has no money, right. you can take him to court and they can get a judgment against him and garnish his wages and he's not working anywhere. So what do you get, you know? Right. But the, the key to it all is get it in advance. And I remember yeah. a guy called me once for a gig. Um, it was a St. Patrick's Day gig. And he was freaked out about what he thought his draw was going to be with the band that he had gotten. So he hired us two weeks out. And this wow. is back in the day before internet. And so it was only mailing lists that could do it. And I said, I'll take the gig, but I can't guarantee you what's going to happen. Right. Uh, and I need to be paid in cash when I arrive with my truck at the loading dock. He said, are you kidding me? I go, I'm not kidding you. I said, I've been in this business a long time. I've been in the years, like five years at that point. <laughs> I'm a veteran of five years, pal. Don't try and come to the raw problem with me. So I show up. He gives me this <laughs> cash. I got it all out. We do it. Place gets packed. It's a great gig. Everything's happy. But I was like. I was not I was not wrong to demand that because right. I didn't think that two weeks was enough for him to get the word out back then. And even if I did, why take the risk? Why should I be on stage thinking about the lyrics to the song, the notes I'm singing those lyrics to, the chords I'm playing on my guitar, and whether the promoter is going to pay me at the end of the night? I got enough on my plate when I'm trying to keep it together, you know. Yep. And with that wad of cash in my pocket that would choke a horse. That's a comfort. That's a comfort to me. Now I can just think about the lyrics. I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. You know, uh, when you're when you're doing business, is it yourself who's doing most of the representation, most of the uh, interaction yeah. and talking? Yeah. Yeah. I do the bookings and sort of the uh, uh, promo stuff. Uh, my brother does the uh, the law stuff. He handles the books, the uh, checkbook, paying the crew, keeping the accounts balanced. I did the checks for the first, I did the bank account for the first nine years, and it was so fucked up by the end of the bank thing. We had to change, we had to change banks. <laughs> we had to pull, say, Just give us all of our chips right now. We're all out, and we're going to another bank to start over. Because, I, oh, my God, it was so bad. I'm just not, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I do my taxes on April 14th, you know. This year, May 14th. Yeah. I'm going to wait till May 14th. Why not? You know, and he's just more, he, he's much more, you know, that's our personality difference. He's yeah. a reader and he's a lawyer and he's a list maker and a keeper tracker of her. And, uh, and consequently, he plays bass in a very cerebral way. He's got great, he's got great heart, yeah. right? But he also has followed the Phil Lesh, Leland Sklar method of, standing on a note sometimes while the chord progression keeps going, he's pedaling that tone right. and then going down deep. You know, our sound system is, it'll go down to 30 cycles. Yeah. So that's like, it'll rattle your sweater, you know? <laughs> and so he thinks of things very, um, he's very artistic, but he's also, he thinks very strategically. Sure. So that he can change like a note, he can sub a note. Like we're playing fire in the mountain, right? Right. B major. To A major. So some bass players just play B and a couple of things off of B and then A, a couple of things off of A, and then walk up to there, walk right down. And he'll play B to A, and he'll play B, and he'll play F sharp, which is three frets below A, which makes it the relative minor, which turns our A major chord into an F sharp minor without any of our permission. Wow. Yeah. It makes it an F sharp minor. <laughs> and it gives it this roundness that you're like, oh, you hear that sound. And you've heard it before. 
you just haven't heard it on Aerosmith records. You've heard right. it on uh, James Taylor records right. or someone or a Beatle, you know, thing where substitutions are made to create this very beautiful confluence of notes that are like, you know, it's not just, you know, Louis Louie anymore. Yeah. Now you're playing, you know, something much, much more um, robust right. melodically. So that's a side note on him. Yeah. <laughs> but no. he does the contracts. <laughs> that's 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 fascinating because um I think that goes again that that idea of personality and experience and who you are going into what you're doing. That's uh it's remarkable. Um do, has there ever been a time where you you guys felt like you were close to um you know creating something whether it be you know another album or a song or you know that you you were missing something and then the breakthrough happened of oh you know paul brought you know just thought of something because you know something happened to you or whatever that brought out your personality that just kind of like finished off something that you were trying to get to i haven't had that happen but but certainly and we haven't had it in the global sense where like oh this album needs something oh eureka here it is right nothing like that but i do identify with whoever it was um i mean the chili peppers or something somebody's working on an album they go did it feel like you were working on a final album for the band? And he said, man, every album feels like the last album. And it's true. Our second album, we're like, this could be the last one, so let's put everything I great on there, you know? Sure. And never never hold a song off for the next album. He said, we'll put that on the next album. You always put it on. And if there's too many, then you have to make tough choices. Right. But um, we have had things uh, in the studio where we're playing with a song, and it needs something, you know? And you're like, you know, what does this need? And Mark Hag, our guitar player, is a great one for that because he thinks really outside the box. He he almost doesn't want to do anything that's been done, you know. So he's sure. the most avant-garde of us, and so he's always the one to turn to if you need a left turn. And he's also a great riff, you know, yeah. Joe Perry kind of riff writer. And I write very easily with him because he comes up with these riffs that are, I feel like that's the hardest part. And I'll just fill in the rest. Right. He feels like, well, that's the easy part. The hardest part would be filling in the rest, so it's perfect. But <laughs> We were doing um, Try Me, and it's just this sort of lilting song that goes along. And I was thinking, well, why, doesn't it, why don't we skip a beat and drop one beat? And so we dropped one beat, and he goes, oh, no, I said, let's do it straight. He said, let's drop a beat. So we dropped a beat, we played it, and we're in the studio. Time's ticking, right? Right. But we're like, uh, let's try that. It doesn't work either. And then almost at the same time, we're like, Let's do one measure of straight, one measure of drop beat, one measure of straight, and then they'll come back around. I'm like, let's try it. And we tried it. We're like, Eureka, this is great. Now this little song, and it's still just a little song, our thing, but has this really unique outro. Yeah. And so we extended the outro uh, longer than you might normally do it and had a fade out. And we decided to, to do an anti-solo, which we call it when, when Mark goes and plays instead of playing he's like playing this little yeah. chord 
progression. So it doesn't feel like a solo, but it's definitely soloing. Right. But it's not like, you know, notes, single notes. And right. it just came out beautiful. We're, we're sitting back listening to it like a half hour ago. This didn't exist. And now we're listening to the playback. We're just like, oh, this is this is the perfect solution to the song. So those things happen to us more on a song by song basis rather than right. an album, you know, a global right. thing like that. Um you know, you guys um you guys played uh or have played for you know many times uh Fitzgerald's um yeah. and um uh, there was uh, another little establishment uh close to Fitzgerald's that you had a little uh, hand in, right? <laughs> yeah. Wire was right down the street. I was one of the four owners. We started it. Um, three musicians, well, four musicians, one of them was a studio engineer guy. The rest of us were players. And our vision was to have a, a nightclub with a good size room, a good stage, and an awesome sound and lights. Uh, have a, a school in the back for adults and kids. Uh, music school and have a recording studio upstairs from that we found the building we found the investors we built the thing we were a couple investors short but we decided to open anyway without the studio we'll say we'll put the studio in as we go and then we never i mean the club the club we got the great sound system great lighting great stage and stuff and a great staff and really looked great and we had some big shows and this and that and it was great but it was just breaking even you know what i mean and just right. paying back a little bit here and there and the school never got off the ground because School of Rock happened six right. months before and Oak Park got all the low fruit. Like all <laughs> those kids were there. So who's going to go to this new school where their buddies aren't, you know? Right. So that kind of crushed us. And then we never got the studio going. And so finally it's, it's, on, the, it's on the market now. Yeah. But I left it a, two or three years ago because the school was kind of be, you know, all our bands played there. And I was in on the, the business stuff, but my section was going to be the school. And I, I could never get it. We didn't have the budget to advertise. It was just a tough yeah. situation all around. So it was a dream that would have been really great. If that rocked, that would have been the best, man. We had so many great plans for that place. But, you know, what are you going to do? Everything yeah. doesn't work out. Well, you got no one to walk away and no one to run. And you also can't serve two masters for very long. Right. You know? Exactly. So a lot of it was 150 shows a year. And I do 30 other ones on the side. It's 180 shots. Every other day I have a show. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And then on top of that, too, you know, when you're talking about it's one thing if you were um, just being uh, an owner, an investor, but to then be hands on with the school. Um, yeah. It, yeah. You're, it yeah. took a lot of time and you're just coordinating everybody and doing open houses and trying to get people signed up. And then this teacher is sick today. And then I take his lesson, you know, like no problem. I can, I can teach all of them at, at sure. least at the intermediate level. Yeah. You know, if some kid's a prodigy on the piano, then he's going to teach me, <laughs> <laughs> but I can, but I can teach him, you know, all the way up to it, including dream on, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, it became a time suck and it became an emotional drag. Going in there knowing that it wasn't going to work. Nothing. Yeah. I didn't see anything big changing on the horizon. We weren't going to get that studio built. And so the piece, it, it was missing a piece from the get-go. We're like, well, let's just, let's just open before another day yeah. goes by because we bought the property. We got the investors. Let's just go and we'll take the profits and put the studio in. Like, 
that never happened. <laughs> but I, I have no regrets. It ate up a lot of time, a lot of effort, and some money too. I mean, I had, I had some money invested in that. Yeah. But you know, what do you do? You get up to the plate and you take a big swing. Yeah, take a big swing. I like to think we didn't whiff. I like to think we hit a long fly ball and hit off the wall, and the guy caught it. Yeah. 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 Um, what are you gonna do? Has there has there been anyone uh, in your you know thirty years of uh, being Mister Blotto, whether it be a fan or maybe someone who uh, was younger, uh, 15, 16, 17, who turned to you for advice and ultimately then went on to like have their own band that you guys might have uh, crossed paths over the years? Uh, not one that I can think of or quote, but there's certainly been um, cats and bands that are playing like a festival with us or something. And they'll come up and say, Hey man, I remember my dad taking me to your shows at Vasa park. And I was like eight. And I thought you guys were just the biggest rock stars ever. It was great. So it's just great to play with you now. I'm like, oh, thanks man. Yeah. That happens quite a bit. Um, and people that aren't musicians, you get people that come up, you know, this, these two kids came up to me last night at Reggie's after our show. And she goes, hi, my mom was, is, and she said the name of her mom, who I totally know. Like she was at shows forever and ever good friend. I hug her every time I see her. I'm like, oh my God. And this, I said, how old are you? She goes, 23. I'm like, oh my God. But like, you know, seven years into Blotto, she was born. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like telling you, you know, the day you were born was like my thousandth gig for Blotto. <laughs> I think about that. But the thing is about us never stopping was that it was a never-ending parade of faces. Like people right. that were in. There's always 40 or 50 that you know. Like even if you don't know their first names, you know them. You're like, what's right. up, bro? You know, if I saw them at another show, if I was at Tedeschi Trucks and I saw one of these 50, I'd be like, what's up? High five, you know, cheers. Like I totally know them. Right. And there's been those 50 you know, along with the whatever other, you know, thousand other people that come to a show every now, now and then. These people right. come to every show. And that 50 has changed over the years. Right. 15 different times. Right. And so it's a never-ending parade of faces through the fog to me. And then I see one from 20 years ago who saw us, then went and had kids, and now they're back because their kids are grown. And I'm like, I see that facing, and I'm like, Yes. I totally, yeah, big hug. I'm going for you. And then they have a story to tell about how they were with their husband and at our show, then they got married and they played Kiss Me in the Morning and then they had kids and they were gone and they're back. And they're so, like, I hear this stuff all the time. And it's just warms my heart. It's like, and it's not like I had a mission to make the world happy. I had a mission to make me happy. I like playing music. You know what I mean? Right. And anyone who says something else is selling you something because the reason you do it is because you get off on it. Right. The yeah. audience is a great part of that energy. As we found out, as this whole last year, we've done podcasts and, and live streams from our warehouse, and it's just us. We still get off on playing really well together, and we have a good moment. Like, oh, it was great. But it's not like having the audience right there. Right. But, but in the end, we're not doing it to save the world or to bring joy to people. Like some people, oh, you bring so much joy to people, and, you know, God bless you. I'm like, thank you. God bless you, too. But that wasn't the goal. That's, right. that's an artifact. I mean, that is a very welcome artifact, and I love it. And I, you know, who else gets that? Very few people. But it's not that altruistic. It's more. It's much more 
solipsistic, if you will, if I can sure. use that word on the air, <laughs> you know, more self-indulgent. Yeah. Than that. Um, yeah. Along those lines, when you're playing live, have you guys ever changed up a set because of what you're feeling from the audience reaction? Well, we almost never make a set list. So it's almost always that, you know, if it's a bigger show, um, we'll certainly call the first three tunes. Let's sure. say, let's call our first three. We're going to open these three and then we'll see how it goes. Cause you don't know how the, how the audience is going to be. And ours is a very audience interactive right. energy. And sometimes someone will yell out a tune and, and you will look at each other and think, that's a good idea. Actually, <laughs> we, we almost always play with someone yells out. <laughs> Now, now everyone's going to be shouting yeah. out all their fucking shit. They want to hear, like, you said you play whatever you want. But, you know, a lot of times we'll be like, it's a great idea. Sometimes, sometimes people will come up to us and give us a set list. Like wow. they wrote out. Yeah. And almost always we'll be like, let's play it. Like, how bad could it be? It's just music. No one's going to get hurt. Now, when we make a set list, like if we're going to be on TV or we're going to be on the radio or we're going to be on um, an opening slot for somebody big, you know, or That's something sure. like that. We'll craft it. We're like, okay, we need to do this. We do this. This is, you know, these two songs are in the same key. These are kind of the same feel. Let's keep them apart or let's not do that one. Um, or like we play a, a festival and it's something that like Shoe Fest. You familiar with Old Shoe? Yeah. Great, great band. And they throw yeah. a great fest every year. And I hope they get to do it this year. Shoe Fest. And we would normally be the Sunday 7 p.m. slot on the main stage. It's so great. We love that, you know. And so on those, sometimes we would make a 10 song set. So it's like an hour and a half and you don't want to be on stage going, Oh, what do you think? Should we play? Uh, you don't want to be that. You want that. Right. Moment. So, but for the most part, the most we'll do is the first three and the rest of it all vibes off of what people do. Now, when they hand us that set list on the cocktail napkin, sometimes they'll have three mid tempo halftime beat songs in the key of G and we're like, okay, we're not there that, you know, let's pick the best of that <laughs> lot. Of but we have done it where they hand us an entire set list and we play the entire thing because wow, like as not, we might've chosen that exact set list. Right. You know? Right. Um, like I, when we do a dead show, if we do an all dead show, we'll typically go back in the archives and find one of their sets and play it because dead always alternated. Bobby tune, Jerry tune, Bobby tune, Jerry tune, Brent tune, Bobby tune, Jerry tune, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And whether or not you're aware of it, it has to contribute to the pulse of a show as you listen to it. It has to. There right. has to be similarities to Jerry tunes and similarities to Bobby tunes within their own camps. Right. That when you slice them up like cards, let me use a card reference because you're in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> slice them up like cards. There has to be a semi-conscious or subconscious flow to that that yeah. is in some way a factor of enjoying a dead show. Right. So we go back and we, we'll just pick a set that they did because they already did it, you know? And if we picked our own, we might happen to land on their exact set list from one of their shows. Right. You know, it, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I like to have freedom to choose in the moment, but I also have the, like to have the freedom of not having to think on stage and just go, True. here's the next one, here's the next one, here's the next one, here's the next one. True. Um, and does that um, also really reflect the camaraderie of you guys in terms of you know feeling what the audience is feeling but then also you know turning and going hey uh let's uh go right into this right now 
you know, is that like a feed off of each other and, and you know, feeling it's more of that. It's more of the second yeah. one. It's more of like, wow, that felt good. And, and our rule in the band is fresh wins. If it's a song we haven't played in a month, it wins yeah. almost every time. You're just like, oh, that felt great. Yeah. Cause it, you put it away long enough for that sourdough to rise again. You're like, okay, you know, <laughs> and it's a song that you played Friday. You don't play it Saturday. And then maybe you played it Tuesday at the acoustic gig. And then you come to Friday and you're like, someone calls it too. And you're like, dude, I feel like we played the shit out of that song lately. Let's not. And our advantage is we have thousands of songs. So right. like we can actually, well, probably not thousands, probably, we probably have 500 songs on the active playlist that we could choose Just from. Pull out. Yeah. And each night is 16 or 18 tunes. So it's like, there's no reason to repeat, you know, so you go three or four shows, you're at 120 songs or something like that. And then those are the 120 you're used to playing. Right. And so those will start to repeat, but you, you always got to pull some of those other ones out that maybe you need to run through mentally. The bridge is weird. So, okay, hang on a second. Let me find the bridge. Okay. I got it. You know what I mean? Just a little quick review. Right. And that's one of the good thing about a set list. You can pick a song that everyone's a little bit rusty on. And then before you go on, everyone's going to go to their corner and be like, okay, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Refilling your eyes with it. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned sourdough. Um, <laughs> If, uh, you know, this time of, you know, being locked down and, and very much things like sourdough bread and, you know, all these odd things that became very popular or trendy or just the mood in general of a lockdown, uh, has that led you to uh, writing anything from that perspective of the lockdown um, you know, I just off of hearing that, you know, like a song like "The Sourdough Rises Again." You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you have you been able to become creatively inspired by what has been going on in the world? Uh, not in anything that specific, although sure. that's a great idea, um, which I will now steal from you. Absolutely. Um, but in the, in, a, in a bigger sense. I've written a few songs just about uh, the, the bigger idea of the pandemic. Like one of them is um, a real minor, slow one. It's like, if I took the time to tell you the truth and you took the time to let it sink in and we saw ourselves like in a movie, the curtain is rising. So let it begin. Yeah. And it's talking about like, I'm not a conspiracy guy at all, but all the conspiracies that are rolling around, I was like, what if I was in that head, you know? Right. And, that, and the song goes on to talk about, you know, we've all seen the show. We've all seen the puppets. We all know someone's back there pulling the strings. <laughs> the, the glittering lights are but distractions. We're robbed blind while our mind is on other things. Wow. You know? Yeah. So it's like, and at the very end of it, it's like, we all play our, our parts with perfect precision. We fall like dominoes, simpatico to the end. <laughs> dominoes, simpatico to the end. Like how, the, you know, the good yeah. guys and the bad guys are really the same guys. They're all working together, you know. Yeah. So like that kind of big gloom and doom one came to me and I had that. And another one I had about just being frustrated about my girlfriend was all the way across town. Oh. And in the beginning, we were all so, you know, uh, uh serious about like okay i better stay here you better stay there because like we should do like three weeks and then this whole thing's gonna blow over remember right easter we're gonna be back in church it'll be great right so i remember like we were apart for like two or three weeks and she was right you know she was wow. she's uptown 
And I was like, out here, I called it. So in my movie, or my movie, in my uh, songs are like movies, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, it, it, the song is called uh, So Downtown. You're so downtown, right? Which has the double entendre of like, you're so like frilly and like fashionista, which right. she's not. She's very earthy, but it, you know, you're right what you know, you make up the rest, right? So I was right. like, you're so downtown. I'm so uptown. I'm hanging around. What can I do? What can I do to make you happy instead of so blue? And then it's talking about, I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. I want to ring for you. I want to sing for you. Like these things that I can't do because right. you're so downtown. Yeah. I'm so up, you know? So ones like that, we have one called We the People, which is talking about big political stuff without choosing a side. I don't think I'll ever be the one that like rips on this particular president or this particular. Yeah wave I'll, I'll talk about it in bigger sense and if you know my politics you'll know where i stand on it but i'm not telling you where to stand on it right you know what i mean right i mean we can all agree that the world is a big dark place we can all agree that the world's also a lovely place right right we can all agree that the government does big things really well we can also agree that the government is completely fucked in almost every imaginable way and money until money's taken out of it it's going to continue to be so yeah we can all agree on those regardless of what side you're on. And, right. and furthermore, if I get on my pulpit here, <laughs> I submit to you, I submit to you that if you took not radical left or radical right, but right. if you took somebody that was on the left and somebody that was on the right and you wrote down 10 things, I have a pen now, see this? <laughs> and you wrote down 10 issues that face us all, right. like that, that, are, that are political issues. So border control, uh, military around the world, abortion, taxes, um, and five others. Those two people that are diametrically opposed because their parties keep shouting at them that the other party's bad and only thinks this and only thinks that. Those two people would probably agree on six or seven of those 10 issues. Right. 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 I'm in left center field. I'm not on the chalk line. Right. And I'm not in dead center. Right. But border control, I think we should probably have some border control. I don't think they should open the gates and let 30,000 people in. Right. 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 Also, I don't think they should rip kids from their parents and put them in cages. But, you know, the parents are ripping the kids from their own arms and sending them unaccompanied up here. Right. So, it's, so what do we do with those kids? I mean, I, I don't know. It's a complex answer. I'm, thank God I'm not in charge of solving that. You know? But. I think that most people would agree on six to seven of those things. And once everyone knew that, they'd be like, why am I letting the loud mouth on my cable news choice? Even right. what? Tell me what you think and what I should think in, as a reaction. Right. Why don't I just say, and we have a song called People in the Middle, and I think we should start a political party called the People in the Middle because it would vastly outweigh either of the right left markets. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very smart in terms of um, the perspective. You know, you're you're right on. Um, there is always going to be commonality in a bond just human humanistically. Yeah. Unfortunately, what I, th I think is even more than the uh, the talking heads is the way that the computer controls us now. Mm. You know, it's like everything is coming from a perspective 
not of this or that. It's coming straight from this little screen. And, <laughs> you know, we, we always, we always like to say, you know, how, how many times our generation, those of us who are in our forties or fifties, we were the, um, the real TV generation because right. our parents were the baby boomers. So right. therefore TV became important to us because it was a friend. Cause there was always one in the house yeah. and it was always able to be turned on. Exactly. And now the dangerous thing is here's something in a computer that literally yeah. now you're holding in your hand in a follows phone. you around your day. <laughs> Exactly, man. I I find it fascinating. Like if I'm going out and I'm doing something uh, work related, what I like to do to amuse myself is to keep my eyes on things. And what is fascinating to me, the other day, sitting down on a bench, and they're obviously waiting for someone, but it was absolutely a father and a daughter, mm-hmm. and instead of interacting with each other. Both of them were uniquely oh, looking sure. down. Yeah. And it was oh. like, wow, that's what we've become. And I know. And, but when it happens to you, you're like, well, I, I do have to check these emails because. Right. You know, so it's like, yeah. I've done the same thing. I look at people and I'm like, oh my God, look at that. Like, that's the new American Gothic. Like, uh, yeah. or like, I wish that, um, who's the guy who drew all the pictures for the Saturday Evening Post? Rocco. Oh, Rocco. Yeah. Norman Rockwell would be great. He would have like, you know, four teenage girls with like a beautiful Brad Pitt guy walking behind them. Yeah. And they'd be looking at a picture of Brad Pitt, right? Yeah. Something like that. You know, like he would, he would encapsulate it perfectly. But it's like that and it's not like that. I mean, I, I look at it and I judge it. And then I find myself next to my son who's 16. And we relate greatly on all kinds of stuff. But we might be at dinner and before the menus get there, he might be texting somebody, yeah, I'm with my dad at dinner. And I might be like, yeah, well, we got to make a decision on that gig. You know, like, yeah, I'm eating dinner now, you know, whatever. If someone's looking at us, they're saying the same judgmental thing. Right. So it's hard. But, yeah, I think more more times than not, it is probably pernicious and, and as evil as we say it is or as we look at others doing it. It's probably right. Um, as we wrap up here, um, I want to thank you again for taking the time, man. It's it's oh, just no so problem. it's so fun, uh, you know, just just bullshitting with you here and and getting perspectives and an idea of, you know, how it is for you and your process and, and the band. Um, but as uh, as a movie fan, let me ask you the three top films that are your Ooh. go-to films. Wow, top three of all time. Okay. I know. Top one of all time for me is American Hustle. Sure. It just is perfect in how those streams come together and those people and they con the Connors and this and that. I'm like, and then the heartbreak of the marriage. Like, I just love that one. Yeah. Now, I did watch that with my girlfriend, Hi, for the first time. First time I saw the movie. And we kept pausing it and then, wait. She knows that, and it was the best. It took us five hours to watch the movie. Sure, but it was like, it was like, does she know that? It, what did she mean right there when she said, "You're nothing to me until you're everything to me"? Is she <laughs> done with him, or is she saying, "I'm staying in character"? Like it was great. There's so right. much going on. I've seen the movie. I own, I own it on Disney. Okay, 
Number two is that Michael Keaton movie, The Birdman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People get it. They're like, what's with the fucking guy with the wings talking? I'm like, dude, that's his alter ego. That's the guy. That's him saying, let's be a big, you know, stupid movie star and make a gazillion dollars again. He's trying to be an actor. Right? Yeah. And he's getting so much shit from all the people around him in that theater and his daughter is out of rehab. Like, all this shit. And throughout the whole thing, there's that drummer that appears. Yeah. And they don't see him because he's playing the soundtrack to us. Right? <laughs> oh, it's so great. And then he's flying around. I mean, in the end, I hated the ending. Hated the ending. What did he, did he fly? Really? Is he a bird? He's flying. She's looking up like, I'm like, no, no, no. He, he jumped to his death. Right. Exactly. And she's looking at the birds. She's like horrified. And she's like, no, he's free. He's free now. Just like right. these birds are. I get it. So I hate movies that make you write the ending because <laughs> don't, you want to pay me to be a screenwriter? Fine. I pay you $12. I want a fucking ending. <laughs> like no country for old men. Yeah. The end of that movie. Yeah. The guy buys the shirt for the kid and he walks away. I'm like, what happens? So you get caught. Who, what, what? What? I almost threw my popcorn at the theater, except I eat all my popcorn in the first 10 minutes of every movie. It's gone by the time like the credits are, like the previews are done. I'm like, I'm all out of popcorn. I'm all out of my Coke. Like, what? <laughs> and then uh, the last movie I thought I knew it, but I might disagree with myself now because these are all so, so recent. Um, I really, really liked Limitless. Sure. Bradley yeah. Cooper, that pill. Yeah. That was an intriguing commentary on all pharmaceuticals and all AI and all this crazy stuff that's going on now. And I really enjoy it. Those three movies, I would say, are the ones that I would own and I would easily watch every three years. Sure. You know what I mean? Once I forget enough of it to watch it again, then I watch it. Right. You know? Right. I don't want to I don't want to do like Scarface where I know every single line because I've watched it. <laughs> 38 times you know it's on here okay you watch it till the end it's on right. here you watch it right. you gotta leave so piece together i've seen it 38 times i know everything yeah. <laughs> what are yours what are your three um i my my third uh would be uh apocalypse now uh oh yeah i just uh you know and the coolest thing is because of the way things are going nowadays there's three different versions of Apocalypse now that I can... Right, the extended one where they're at that French yeah, people's the, house the French, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the original edit got it right, though, don't you? Everything in the original edit is spot on. The only thing that I miss is the ending um, was changed up originally... The air attack wipes out every fucking thing, and they they basically pulled that ending and switched it up so there is a little more um, of a uh, did did Martin Sheen's character basically become a Kurtz type, right? You know, um, did he become the beast that he was hunting? Exactly, because because that's what they allude to with you know him chopping chopping them up so it's yeah. it again it's one of those you know great classic lines but it puts you in a mindset of something that i've never experienced you know i've never been to war and right. i i like that feeling of uh you know learning about you know 
my own thoughts oh, of do I would amen, I feel that? brother? That's what movies bring. Yeah, that, that's it. You can experience being an astronaut and going to Mars and having your oxygen run out. Like yeah. you could be talking about the horror, the horror. That yeah. would be the horror. Yeah. Um, so that's a great choice. Yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah. So then the second film, you know, I gotta say, I'm a Scorsese fan. Absolutely. Probably. Yeah. Um, so. I could I could just say Scorsese in general, but the honest answer for me is Casino. Casino to me is wow. more than Goodfellas. For one reason, um, Goodfellas is a, an intentional mob story. It it is the right. the actual story of the inner workings of the mob. Casino lends itself to using the. Uh, you know, the story that actually happened. Um, but in the bigger context of Vegas itself as a city, because of the fact that in the seventies, it was that point where the mobsters were facing the pressure from, you know, the, the gaming commissions and the DAs. And basically they're trying to clean Vegas but what the they're also fighting the mob is fighting corporations taking over Vegas, right? And so you get the glimpse of the last you know breaths of they're fighting for their autonomy, exactly. Right? You know, yeah. So it's it's it to me another that's interesting. It's a fascinating, you know, from that you know, standpoint, the scope, the scope of that story, I get that that beats Goodfellas. That's interesting, and and that's it, and that's that's it. Like that is such a hard call between the two, and they're I know. and they're only I think four or five years apart in terms of filmmaking, which also blows my mind <laughs> that Scorsese was able right. to do that within a five year period. It was just like wow. how about that scene in Goodfellas though? That scene that's one of if not the longest, one of the longest nonstop takes. Where he takes the girl on the date and they go downstairs in the oh. restaurant. They walk through there and they get the table set up. There's a, it's like you know two and a half minutes or something like that, or maybe longer. And I was, yeah, I was uh, dating a film student at one point, and she was remarking that this was. Did you ever notice that? I'm like, no. And then I watched it again. I'm like, oh my god, it just never stopped. Like the lighting, the yep. timing, the act, everything had to be perfect. I wonder how many passes they took at it. And then somebody had said uh, a remarkably few amount of passes, like three passes, and they had it. I'm like, yeah. Phew. Well, you know, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking Pulp Fiction needs to be in there somewhere too. And like, I don't know if I can cram any of my other ones out, but as far as films yeah. that I can't watch anymore because I watched way too much. But if I could watch, okay, here's, here's the real question. I'm turning the tables on you. Sure. What three movies would you watch if you got to watch them for the first time again? Uh, a naive standpoint, I would say, I would still say my my three, and I would replace one of them with Pulp Fiction because that was such an incredible, mind blowing movie to watch for the first time. Once you know it all, it's yeah, it's still good, but it's kind of like I know every line of that movie, right? Every line, right? You know, and you know that they that Quentin Tarantino didn't cut up the timeline on that until very late in the process, right? Editing line, right? He was going to go uh, chronological, yep, and then when he sh shuffled it all up like that. Whew, Yep. That makes it a masterpiece that it is. Yeah. I, right, what's, what's your number three? It, it, you know, I'm glad you brought up Tarantino because my answer would be 
the film before that, and that's Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, that was great. That, um, I was introduced to that when I was a freshman in college, and it changed my whole perspective on what acting itself is, let alone stories and storytelling. Um, Movie making, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, Pulp Fiction, like you said, it was, it was done so well and so fresh. Yeah. But that first, I, I mean, I could still even just sit here and just everything comes back to me about the feeling I had when I first sat down and watched Reservoir Dogs. I wanted to crawl out of my skin when he was cutting that guy's ear off and covering him with gas. I was like, oh my God. Like when a movie makes you put yourself in the shoes of one of the characters yeah. and be horrified. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not easy to do. It's easy to throw blood on the screen, right? And watch your head roll down the, you know, have a quality kill of some sort. Yeah. It's much more difficult to put yourself in a situation where you're actually squirming at the possibility of ever being in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying to me. That that movie, yeah. that scene of that movie shook me, man. I was like, to the point where I did not like it. And I, when that movie comes on, <laughs> I don't want to watch that. If it's on, I don't watch that scene. It's like, it's that disturbing to me. Yeah. And especially, you know, putting stuck in the middle with you anytime I hear that song like yeah. walking in the grocery store. It brings <laughs> that feeling. And we actually in college, right. you're like, like, <laughs> yeah. And we actually in college, uh, in, uh, early 96, we, uh, did a stage, uh, a student produced and made stage version of that play or of that movie made it into uh -huh. a play. And luckily enough, we were doing it in a classroom and it had a beam that, you know, was holding, the 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 floor and the the ceiling you know in between so what we did is for that scene the cop turned his head and the guy playing uh you know mr blonde is cutting off his ear where you can't see it because it's hidden by this pole yeah and then we had a f I, I actually had a fake ear lying around for whatever reason and so yeah. After you do the cut, Pee Wee Herman from the time you were Pee Wee Herman <laughs> the big, for Halloween, the big ear. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah, the huge yeah. But you know he would, you know he would cut, and then he would take out the ear, and you know here you have an audience literally sitting in the round, and it was the same feeling that you would get watching the movie because. Yeah. You never yeah. think that you're going to see something like that on stage where, you know, here's a real, you know, it wasn't real, right. but, you know, that real emotion coming out of it. So, yeah, I love everything about that scene and how creepy and how, like you said, you put yourself in those shoes and you're like, ah. Uh, when you watch it when you watch a hero movie you put yourself in the spot of the hero like, yeah that's what I would do I would jump over that truck and land on the train and uh, you know beat the guy up right you're identifying with the characters <laughs> in the thing and so when you identify with a person that's completely vulnerable and in a horrifying way it just creeps me out so bad that, that scene crushed me man I'm glad you said that because you you just brought up a whole nother can of worms and I'll just hit on it very quickly. But that idea of identifying with the hero, I think our society right now identifies with the villain. <laughs> you know what? I was watching uh, Narcos. Did you watch Narcos Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. 
So I was I was I watched it right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I just watched it again because enough time had passed. I was sure. talking to my son about it, and I didn't remember something. I was like, "Cool, I can watch it again now because it'll be fresh." Right. That's a good thing about being really spacey. Is you forget everything, you watch it again. Um, <laughs> I'm watching Felix with his big move. Spoiler alert! Anyone watching, tune out. And they've got all the 727s lined up. And they're going to try and move 70 tons, or 70,000 tons. I don't know, whatever, some huge amount. I think, it, yeah, I think it was 70. And I tons. was. And the DEA guys, yeah. And so the DEA guys are creeping up with their guns and they're all in black, and also they're gonna they're gonna foil this mission. And I was like, no, because Felix is gonna get crushed if he doesn't get this across there. The Colombians are gonna kill him. I was, I'm rooting against the DEA. The rooting against the only <laughs> Americans on the, in the thing. And I was and I was rooting for the bad guy. Yeah. So yeah. I think you're right. It's 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 a very interesting complex thought. Um, second film, uh, Easy Rider hands down i would love to see that oh, yeah. without that knowledge that you know the ending again spoiler alert um you yeah know, that that the the dream of this generation was just killed by the ignorance of our country right like heavy shit for right. for such a you know kind of fun trippy film and it is um, i saw it in high school i saw it in high school yeah yeah, it's yeah. Formative. But uh it's it, the yeah, first like great Oh go ahead. No, go ahead. I uh, I was I was gonna say the um the top film for me on both ends um is Dazed and Confused. I Really? Yeah. Hands down. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, was that you were you were younger than that though. You weren't in high school during that. No. And what's interesting about that is a couple different factors. Um, the, the, the thread of high school being the same to every generation you know, from let's say the fifties on, right? <laughs> you have all the same experiences that they have. You yeah, might have them yeah. in a different context, but you have the same experiences. So there's so much yeah. to relate to on the basic level. Then I think of my um, my uncle who passed away in 1983, but he was born in 59. So he would have been that exact class. So a lot of, as a kid, right. a lot of the time I spent with him... I see a lot of these characters in my relationship that makes me think of, of my uncle. And then the final thing, man, if you get stoned and you watch that film, especially on the big screen, you feel like you've <laughs> lived that full day, 24 hours. Man. Yeah. Because it's, it's just like you get in that mindset and you see it and you're like, oh yeah, man. Yeah, now, oh, you know, it was like school just got out and, you know, you see all this daylight. And then the next thing you know, right. it's now well, See, I wasn't ready. that far behind it. I was, you I were... was in eighth grade in 79. Okay, yeah. So 
my freshman year of high school started in the, what was left of 79. So I was just maybe four years behind that class. Like I remember people yeah. in the floppy hats that looked like they're made out of beef jerky and, you know, <laughs> the, you know, yeah. you know the, uh, the fringe and stuff and like that whole deal. I remember those were the kids that were like in high school and we thought were so cool. You know what I mean? So to me watching that movie, I was like, I was kind of on the edge of that. I was like there, we weren't, you know, we weren't right. even drinking beer at that point, but we were like right. admiring these guys that had like, you know, a Mustang and like, this guy had a Camaro with lake pipes on it and yeah. a cool chig and a flowery dress and like all those very romantic memories for me of that time. But I didn't see what you saw, which was the, um, the repeating over time of the same patterns of behavior, regardless of whether you're wearing bell bottoms or, uh, Bermuda shorts. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? That's an interesting, it's an interesting take from that. That's like what they call it, atavistic. It's atavistic, like repeating generationally. Yeah. And I never thought of that as anything. I never thought it was anything except like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High kind of movie. And that's, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, I love the fact that it also works on that level is you can have fans of the film who like it for that sense, you know? Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, for sure. But and you know what? We you know, Blato does events, right? We do Blatopia in the summer. We do right. Blatomal. We do hotels twice a year until the pandemic, right? Right. And at our hotel fest, to Friday, Saturday, we have lots of other bands with us. Three stages, all this stuff. On Saturday night, we usually pick a movie soundtrack. And we do <laughs> between five and eight songs in the second set as a sort of set. And everyone Saturday dresses up as characters in that movie. And it's a hoot, man. Everyone's just had the best in the halls of the hotel. We did that movie. We did Days to Confused. We made a poster, which I'll send to you, with our faces superimposed on top of, you know, the, the movie people. And we did like five or six or seven songs from that. And I did a I did that speech, not speech, but I did Matthew McConaughey's soliloquy about the race car. Yeah. And his, he's got this thing. It's like, he's, he's ripping on this guy's car. He's like, what do you got there? Uh, punched out, four-bill car, and he's talking about his, his tires. He goes, you got to get rid of those pizza cutters and get some real tires. Yeah. Like pizza cutters, like his tires were too thin. <laughs> but it was like a whole list of like uh, Beach Boy worthy gearhead talk in there you know right. what i mean like uh yeah that's a flathead with a dual carb and a four stroke like, or, i remember i said all i did on the mic you know and we do little bits of the movie and so like <laughs> you would have you would have loved to have been there for that oh one. That wow and and um, uh, another thing about that film too is that the soundtrack you could go back to uh american graffiti for the real yeah. you know um where you see how a soundtrack that is from the past is filling out, you know, easy rider was the first really to use that, um, yeah. psychedelic yeah. in, in its film to, to accentuate. But then you had American graffiti use the fifties music to kind of create that atmosphere. The yeah. first notes of sweet emotion when, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the movie is starting to, you know, go from the black to, you're seeing a car pulling into the parking lot. It just, it feels so, you know, encompassing. Like, yeah, you just take this breath. Like this is fresh. I haven't seen yeah. it. You know, it's like, yeah, oh, that it's... song, the beginning of that is just so like open and dark and spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Then Steven Taylor 
hits the fiber slap. Yeah. And, and then he said, Stephen Tyler said at Howard Stern that it, the fiber slap broke, and you hear it go, clink. <laughs> he goes, it broke into two pieces, and there's reverb on it, and it goes, clink. And he goes, we left it in. That's what that sound is. The, you hear the first oh, one. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. You know fiber slap? Yeah. Have you ever seen one? Yeah. 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 And so, and so he hits it for the second time. He goes, clink. <laughs> he kept it in there. But it's so big and dark and, right. you know, spooky and that's why I mean those twenty seconds. I can't believe more people hadn't used that in a movie thing because it's so like it lends itself to a visual like so. Well. And then and then after that, you know, when it first hits the, and then you hear the suite for the first time. It's a harmony suite, so it's a full sound that now is encompassing you for yeah. that first you know sweet emotion, sweet emotion. And then talk about things, you know, so that yeah. it, you get this euphoria and then you get dirty, yeah. you get dirty with it. And it's like, yeah. and and then from a filmmaker standpoint, then you see all the important characters that you're going to see throughout the film in quick little shots yeah. so that now you're part of the high school. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, because those are the ones, like I said, those are the kids we looked up to because they were 16 and 17 and having all the fun. We were like, right. that's great. You know, like, so that would have been our, yeah, yeah. our list of like t- 10 admirable older kids that we think are really damn cool. Man. Yeah. 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 Uh, so interesting. Yeah. Uh, I never would have seen that. I never would have seen that in your top three. But that's very interesting. Yeah, Apocalypse Now has never appeared in a sentence next to Amazing and Confused. <laughs> Unless they said they shouldn't have used Jim Morrison's The End, they should have used Daisy Confused. That's the only thought of those two are going to be in the same sentence. Well, <laughs> you know, that's that's funny though. Apocalypse Now, the first seven minutes, I believe it is, from, again, a great come in where you're hearing a chopper sound. Yeah. And you see the city, man. yeah, you see this expansion of this huge jungle and napalm being dropped yeah. and the end oh. is starting, you know, like you said, kind of like sweet emotion. It starts off dark because it's the end. You're now drawn into this. And then the brilliance of having that sound end up being the fan and man, you were in his mind and yeah, he goes remembering that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he looks out the window and it's Saigon shit. I'm still in Saigon. Uh, you know, it's like brutal. you know brutal. waiting to go out on the next mission. So yeah. Uh, um all right, brother. Well, yeah. we should wrap up because we're uh we've we've talked for uh almost two hours here, and I'm sure people who are turning in, uh if you made it this long, you're definitely a fan of Mr. Blotto because it's like being at the concert, man. You know? If you made it this long, check under your seat. You get a car. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and that and that's a promise that is Paul's making. Um, not yes, me. So. I promise you. I promise you the car of your choice. <laughs> um, any? Uh, do you guys have any gigs coming up? Well, we're back to doing Tuesdays at Reggie's. Okay, good. Uh, in one way or another, it's me and Alan, the drummer. I think I got Mark on board now. I did April and May with other cats coming in and doing it just because it was, as soon as it was allowed, I'm like, I'm in. Because no. I caught COVID early 
and I wasn't particularly worried about getting it again. And now I'm vaxxed anyway. Sure. So not everyone in the band is on the same page as is probably the case in every band, unless you're like the Ramones and everyone thinks exactly the same. <laughs> Although they didn't, they didn't actually, they had very political, vastly different things. Yeah. But um, we're back at Reggie's on Tuesdays in one way or another. We am looking at my board right now. We have a, a, a camp out called Drive-In Groovy <laughs> on May, May 8th. Wow. And it's limited to 100 cars. It's 100 bucks a car, and you can put four people per car if you want. And you can come out for the night and camp out on this beautiful rolling hills and stuff. There's a natural amphitheater. Wow. Awesome. We do a lot of events out there. So that's Drive-In Groovy on May 8th. And if you just go to mrblotto.com or .net, either one, M-R-B-L-O-T-T-L, you'll see details on that. But that's what's coming up. Awesome. Um, man, I appreciate the time, Paul. This has been uh Me too. It's been a hoot. We had a yeah. good half-hour prep work yesterday. I was like, this yeah. is going to be pretty easy. Some body go. Uh, and uh, of course, anytime uh, you get out this way, if the uh, you know the uh, the mood hits you to come to Vegas, you're always you know welcome to the uh, the homestead. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it, man. We appreciate uh, it. Yeah, uh, we support you in everything you do, brother. And uh, man, just keep doing what you do because I'll tell you, sometimes when I'm driving and you know things just got you down just put in a little Mr. Blotto and it's like alright man shit ain't that bad shit ain't that bad All right. So I'm so glad to be to be that component that's wonderful to hear <laughs> awesome and everyone listening thank you for uh, tuning in and uh, until next time everybody we'll see you then Bad Boys of Podcasting.